Hello and welcome to Stream It, the podcast where we explore movies, old favorites, new favorites, and every so often movies we love just a little bit less. This is season five, episode four, and today we are traveling back to 1967 to talk about Bonnie and Clyde. As always, my name is Zachary Ortz. I am one of your co-hosts, and I am joined this week, just like each week preceding this week, by always the getaway driver, Matthew Watkins. Hey, Matt, how are you doing? That's me. Uh, I'm doing okay. People will probably be able to hear a little bit of a, a, a little bit of sickness in my voice. Um, I've been sick the past couple of days uh, and, you know, getting better. But uh, right about on the tail end of it, maybe like one more day of being sick. But, um, yeah, uh, if you're noticing my voice sounds a little bit different or I'm uh, suppressing some coughs at points, that's the reason why. Uh, well... Thank you for rallying for the podcast, and uh, hopefully by the time people are hearing this, you're feeling better. Otherwise, oof, that's that's a long cold. That would be a disaster, yes. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about Bonnie and Clyde here. What's your history with this movie, and or what did you know about the real-life historical Bonnie and Clyde figures coming into this? Uh, so my history with this movie is none. Um, mm-hmm. I did nice. before you added it to the list. You said we should watch it. It was on a bunch of lists for different movies, um, and so you know it was it was one that you had your eye on a little bit. Um, I didn't know that it existed before before you pitched it <laughs> for the list. So so that was my history with the movie. Um, it's a as far as my uh, knowledge of the real life folks uh bonnie and clyde i do teach american literature and so i cover a bit of the great depression um when i'm getting there and so bonnie and clyde um i've done a little bit of research on them just in regards to that stuff but never gone really really deep on bonnie and clyde um just enough probably more than what most people know but not not like a a huge amount um and then I also saw in 2019 the film The Highwaymen, um, and uh, that is a film about the um, the Texas Rangers who were trying to catch Bonnie and Clyde. Um, and uh, this film, Bonnie and Clyde, was uh, they uh, Netflix bought the rights to it, the 1967 film. Um, in conjunction with making that film The Highwaymen so that it would be on in the week that The Highwaymen came out. So you could watch The Highwaymen and then watch Bonnie and Clyde afterwards. Um, I didn't do that, but uh, I am familiar with the story from that film too. Do you think that would have been the optimal direction to go? To go Highwaymen and then Bonnie and Clyde? Or would it have been better to go Bonnie and Clyde into Highwaymen? Uh, Probably the other way around. Um, Probably watch this film and then watch... Uh, the Highwaymen. It's uh, the two films are starkly different in their approach to the subjects. Uh, not just because um, you're dealing with the the law enforcement that's trying to catch Bonnie and Clyde, but also it takes a dramatically different approach to the telling of history. Um, uh, that film tries to be pretty historically accurate, and this one really doesn't. Um, mm-hmm. so, and we can get into that stuff as we're going along, but, um, I don't know. It's a, so they, I don't think they actually make very good companion pieces. Um, mm-hmm. so, but you know, 
it's the story about two similar historical figures from that are associated. And there's also a half centuries difference between when the two movies came out, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and my personal history with this is just about the same. I had never seen the movie. I didn't really know anything about the movie. I could not have told you that it even had Warren Beatty or Faye Dunaway. So just pretty much coming in cold. I did know, I guess I knew the movie existed because I knew enough to suggest we watch it. And so I knew that it was like on the AFI top 100 list, but I didn't really have any, I, I didn't have any idea why it was there. Right. So, uh, and then in terms of knowledge about Bonnie and Clyde, I probably know a little bit less than you. Like, I think I just knew that they were a couple and they robbed banks. That's, that is what they do. They rob banks. And that they sort of became infamous for just traveling, uh, all the way across the, across the country, robbing different banks. And that was the extent of what I knew. (laughs) Yeah, it's a, one of the fascinating things about Bonnie and Clyde, the people, is just um, the concept of how um, the way that it connects to the Great Depression and the rise of the automobile and their connection with all of those things, but also the rise in uh, like the capability of people being celebrities because of uh, film and um, and radio and the way they were kind of changing the landscape of uh, the American public. Uh, and so they were they were celebrities and they were well-loved celebrities at the time period. They, uh, you know, there were a lot of people that really hated them, but a lot of people that really loved them as well. And there were uh, tens of thousands of people that attended their funerals uh, because they were uh, people hated banks at the time period. Um, the Great Depression, you know, it's a, there was a big financial crisis and uh, people hated all uh, all the financial folks that were in charge. And so. Uh, Bonnie and Clyde represented kind of the um, the fight against those things. Yeah, so, so I guess I did also know that they had sort of captured the heart and the spirit of the of the nation as far as, you know, <laughs> that happened from yeah. newspapers instead of from uh, Twitter. Yes. Or the internet. It's worth mentioning they also killed like 20 people. So there is, you know, and some not all of those were like law enforcement officers or uh, some of them were just uh, random folks. So, you know, they're uh, they're complicated uh, figures from history. But yeah, they're, they're interesting. So uh, I was excited to watch this film and get an idea of kind of how it approached the subject. So why don't we talk a little bit about why we chose this film? The certainly any time there's a movie on the AFI top 100 list, I think it's something that is worth watching if you're someone who's interested in movies. And then also something that some of those movies can be a little trickier to get through or it's just a little harder to watch older movies. And so I think those make for good movies for us to cover on the podcast, either because you and I can get the chance to talk through them, or maybe it gives listeners an excuse to watch a movie that uh, I like to call them movies or shows that I want to have seen, but not necessarily movies that I want to watch. So I don't know if this will fall into that for some people, but sometimes it's always nice to 
to have that sort of impetus to do to do something well and even just that you would would never normally go out of your way to watch unless having a reason to do so this this was definitely that for me but uh i'm really glad that we watched it and then so this film is so highly regarded by film critics and film historians and it holds kind of a major turning point in film history so from that sense i think it was a really good one for us to cover and i wouldn't have known about that unless we unless we talked about the film yeah and i actually think this is a really good one for for us to cover because i think here in the front half of the show we can talk about some of the things that made it so important for its time period stuff that probably would have helped me out a lot in my initial viewing stuff that i wish i had known but i just went in completely cold so hopefully we're able to able to help some people out on in in that aspect the other reason we chose it was because we had a pretty big hole in our stream at timeline if you just look at our movies on a <laughs> on on a calendar there's a gap between 1959 which is north by northwest and then we did cabaret as a bonus episode 1972 but if you don't count the bonus episodes then it's even all the way to uh 1977 what was the name pete's dragon pete's, pete's dragon, dragon is yes. the name of the movie we did in 1977 that was a long time ago that was season one yeah it's uh, there's a big gap in this time period um so it was it was good to get something to to fill in that gap a little bit yeah we haven't talked about any any events in the 60s at all really so we got to look up a whole a whole new decade of history research <laughs> all kinds of uh, and lots of stuff was going on uh do you want to say anything else about justification or should we slide into talking about 1967 let's talk about 1967 yeah let's do it all right uh nine i think the 60s are pretty interesting um there's there's a lot of stuff about the 60s that i don't think i had realized in terms of filmmaking but it's a decade of time that I think about a lot in terms of for musical theater it sort of marks the end of the the end of the golden age in 1964 and the beginning of the Sondheim era Sondheim wrote his first show music and lyrics in 1962 with funny thing happened on the way to the forum and then so it sort of heralds the end of the Rodgers and Hammerstein, Harnick and Bach, uh, that that sort of era. Although I guess Harnick and Bach would uh, continue continue to write. Uh, heralds the end of like Rodgers and Hammerstein, Lerner and Lowe, the, those sorts of teams, and everything sort of becomes more modern. Some shows that I really tend to think of as really timeless even though they're <laughs> half a century old at this point point. and then in terms of music like this is when i think we talked before maybe in the inside lou and davis about how albums didn't really start to exist until the late 50s early 60s and then by the time the beatles start in 1962 then sort of the idea of a modern record, the idea of a modern album is in full swing. So this is just a year of immense change and immense explosion in terms of rock and roll and recording artists figuring out what 
what they want to do. So the 1967 in particular is just absolutely a a banner year for music. You have the Beatles release two albums. They release Magical Mystery Tour and Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, uh, an album that is frequently, uh, I think almost every top album list has it in the top five and the vast majority of them will put it at number one or a lot of them will put it at number one. Uh, Velvet Underground released Velvet Underground and Nico this year. Jimi Hendrix Experience released two albums, Are You Experienced and Axis Bold as Love. The Doors released their debut album, The Doors and Strange Days. And uh, Pink Floyd also released their debut album, Piper at the Gates of Dawn. And Beach Boys had released uh, Pet Sounds the year before, which obviously is the album that inspired or is said to have inspired uh sergeant peppers but this year they released smiley smile so (laughs) big year for for music yeah and then it's also just a big change the 60s uh for cinema especially with the rise of television that it started kind of in the 50s but really hit the ground uh in in the 60s you have a lot of these shows that uh become very popular in the 60s things like the andy griffith show and um monty python's flying circus and um the carol burnett show the bugs bunny show mr rogers neighborhood all of sesame street uh the there's all of this is coming together right during the 60s and so you have this huge change because uh the movie studios were in a panic because people weren't going to the movie theaters anymore. They had a huge financial crash in the movie business uh, not long before this film was going on. Um, and so it there was a huge change in the way that people were making movies because you couldn't count on uh, the studio system to be able to turn out movies that people would for sure go and watch anymore. So uh, this movie is right kind of considered the pivot to where um cinema changes uh like right at this movie the way the film historians talk about it yeah this is right what's the name of the the film code that the haze the haze code yeah the haze code this is right when it goes away you know you can see a bunch of people like trying to push boundaries and trying to get uh get things through through the code and seeing what they can get away with and then if it, it had ended either in 1966 or 1967 right um yeah i don't have the the date for it on hand but right around this time period yes yeah i don't um, think and you can see it in this movie it's one of those things that like in my notes while watching this one i was like when was the first time they did x and when was the first time they did y and uh, I assumed it was a couple years earlier than this movie, but then when I went and looked it up, it turned out a lot of it was in this movie. So, yeah, a, a lot of that stuff is in this movie. So the Hayes Code actually ends the year after this movie comes out, but since this is, um, it was like on its, it it, it was dying, um, and so and this one was made by a studio, but mostly kind of without the studio, and was kind of. Uh, its own little thing off to the side. Uh, so, you know, it didn't get involved with the with the Hayes Code as much because of that. Uh, 
a month before this movie came out on June twelfth, uh, there was the Loving versus Virginia case, um, in which the Supreme Court uh, made the decision that um, people had the right to uh, marry between different races. Um, so that was a pretty big deal, and that seems like a pretty big deal. Yeah, uh, I think it's really important. I mean, there is not a lot of um, black folks that pop up in this film, but there are a few places where uh, where you see black people in the film, and it does take place through a lot of the South. Uh, and I think it's important to kind of center on um, the uh, kind of the perspectives that that were missing. Uh, at the time period that probably would have been important in the story. Um, also on June 13th, uh, Thurgood Marshall was, I think he was nominated for the Supreme Court on June 13th. Um, so um, that was a pretty big deal as well. Yeah, and we are, uh, just to place us, we are about what, we're so this movie came out in August, so September, October, November, December, uh, about seven months away from Martin Luther King being assassinated, so that's true. Yes, that so. that is where we are in terms of the civil rights, the and fight for civil rights. The the counterculture movement that was connected, you know, to the um, anti-Vietnam movement and also connected to the civil rights movement was a big part of why this film was successful. And the demographics of people that were going to watch this film uh, were. A lot younger than the demographics at large of the United States and um, not as white uh, as the demographics at large so there were a lot of people that um, uh, a lot of the people that were involved in those kinds of things were also going to see this movie and making it successful yeah it's hard to talk about the art <laughs> of the 60s but maybe we should have started by talking about the Vietnam War it's just sort of the cloud that hangs over everything and created all of these tensions and worked in tandem with um you know the racial justice the fight for racial justice that was happening and uh created a lot of art and a lot of art was commenting on it and came out of it so in terms of the landmark landmarks for the u.s um we had had been involved for longer, but in August 10th of 1964, so three, just about three years before this movie came out, was the Gulf of Tonkin resolution, which gave the president the ability to use, quote, conventional military force in Southeast Asia. So there were already U.S. troops in, uh, already U.S. troops overseas, but that's when everything really started ramping up and then it started creating this pressure cooker in the united states uh i think similar to how the trajectory happened after september 11th as people slowly or not so slowly came around to like yo why are we doing this and then 1968 so a little bit after when this movie came out is when the tide really started to go against this, which is not to say that people didn't oppose it before this. There were a lot of people who opposed, who opposed the war before this happened, but that's maybe when that marker tipped above 50% oppose, if they were doing polling at the time, as opposed to below 50% oppose. 
a lot of the younger folks um, were very against the war, even at this time period. Um, but in particular, Muhammad Ali, a year before, had refused to be drafted, and he was arrested um, and sentenced to prison for refusing to uh, to go in with the draft um, about two weeks before this film came out. So, yeah. So that's... I'm sure people had that on their mind. The other little tidbit that I pulled was that the Big Mac debuted this year um, in in 1967. So this is where Big Macs come into the American consciousness. And I don't know if you'd asked me to 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 say when the Big Mac had happened, I would have had a hard time. It feels like something that's you know that's in America has always existed, if that makes sense. Uh, but in 1967 is is the year. Um, and I was looking at the stats on this. Apparently, uh, McDonald's estimated in 2013 that they had sold 500 million uh, Big Macs by by that point. Jeez. So how much that's at now, I have no idea. But, you know, one of the most uh, highest selling food items of all time there. Yeah, I probably would have guessed um, like the, the late 50s. Because I think... Uh, yeah. yeah, McDonald's opened in 1955, so yeah, it took them. But they didn't come up with the Big Mac till a few years later. Yeah, kind of wild. So um, that ties in with the movie as well for one of the scenes we're going to talk about. But in any case, oh. we can. Oh, I yeah. didn't even know. I'm I'm getting surprised here. Look at this. I know it's it's surprising. So that's all the things that I have from this year, though. Um, there is a maybe it's a bit of a stretch, but there is a slight stream it crossover with this year because uh cabaret the original broadway production opened november of 1966 but that means it won best musical in the year 1967 yeah that's relevant that's that's important for us to know uh cool should we talk about stats and whatever personnel we want to talk about here Yes, let's do that. So the budget for this film was two and a half million dollars. Um, even at the time period, that was not a big budget at all. Uh, this was a film the studio did not believe in. The producers did not really believe in. Um, additionally, um, they believed in it so little that they uh, decided they paid Warren Beatty two hundred thousand dollars, and they told him he could have forty percent of the the box office returns for this film. Um, because they just didn't even believe in the film at all. Um, it was, uh, they didn't really fund it. And so they got these, uh, these new wave directors that were, or th- these new wave writers and, uh, directors and all of this that can put something together on a little bit of a shoestring budget. Uh, so, it, you know, all of that stuff in the box office that it ended up performing um, between the domestic box office over that year and the next year, as well as the international box office, it ended up pulling in $70 million. Jeez. Um, yes. So I'm wondering how, where do you think that ranks at on the return of on investment for the films that we've covered for stream it? Uh, so we've covered... We, this is our fifth season, so we've done four. Uh, so this is what? Does it include bonus episodes? Yes. Uh, yeah, so there's 40 episodes that we've done. Okay, uh, so... Or 40 films we've covered all together. So where does it rank out of 40? Yeah. 
I would guess it ranks sixth out of 40. That's a really good guess. Um, the answer is that it ranks number two out of 40. Oh, no. Um, oh, wow. Yes. Yeah, so, and by a wide margin, it is uh, nearly, so it's 28 times the, uh, the cost. Um, the next closest was 21 times the cost with Slumdog Millionaire. And then the other one is uh, Snow White, which is like 280 times the cost is made back over its time. But that's that's an outlier that doesn't really count, you know? Yeah, um, nothing's ever going to catch Snow White for us, probably. Yeah, and Snow White has been released, you know, uh, half a dozen times and made money uh, that, you know, wasn't even feasible. There's, It's just uh, one of those films that's up there with Gone with the Wind for how much it's made relative to... Uh, its investment but this one is the the biggest return on investment of any film we've done except for snow white wow yeah that is huge box office success for them just like um and they when they released it they were just like this film's going to be terrible so we're just going to put it in drive-ins and like uh dollar theaters and um hope that we can make back some of our money and then it just got so popular and people kept seeing it that they put it uh, a wider release in all the cinemas and made so much money and i mean it it made uh overall it made warren Beatty like uh like 30 million dollars um Jeez. so yeah not not bad for what was essentially a warren Beatty passion project uh-huh wild and so you can see why it had such an impact on um on cinema going forward because it was so just so astoundingly successful yeah 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 and it did well at the maybe not quite as well as you would have guessed at the at the academy awards but it did garner 10 nominations including the best picture nomination and basically the the four big ones so picture director Warren Beatty for actor, and then Faye Dunaway for uh, for best actress, and it didn't win any of those. But it did, Estelle Parsons did win for best supporting actress, and the uh, Burnett. Ugh, I can't read my own thing. Burnett Gurney, Burnett Guffey. Yes. Yeah, I think it's Burnett Guffey. Uh, one one for the cinematography. Uh, yes, Burnett Guffey. And then in terms of highest grossing films for 1967, this one comes in at number three, which uh, is pretty, pretty darn good. Uh, number one is The Graduate at $43.1 million. Number two is Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, a <laughs> pretty big drop, 25.5. Uh, and then Bonnie and Clyde at number three, The Dirty Dozen at four, Valley of the Dolls at number five, to serve with love at number six these are other than the graduate and i guess i've heard of guess who's coming to dinner i don't know any of these movies do you know these i know um do i know all of these movies uh i know the graduate guess who's coming to dinner uh bonnie and clyde the dirty dozen uh i'm not familiar with valley of the dolls but i do know to serve with love you only live twice um, right you only live twice i know because that one's a james bond movie Yes, Thoroughly Modern Millie, The Jungle Book, and Camelot. Yeah, basically all of the top ten except for Valley of the Dolls I'm familiar with. Yeah. Uh, the only one that I <laughs> the one that I wasn't familiar with was Bonnie and Clyde, but now we watched it. Interesting that Thoroughly Modern Millie is on this list because uh, <laughs> in, in this movie there is 
a little snippet from the 1933 movie 42nd Street, which would in 1981 be turned into a Broadway musical, which would win Best Musical. And then Thoroughly Modern Millie on this list from 1967 would get made into a Broadway musical in 2002 and win Best Musical. So kind of a little weird, uh, weird happenstance there. That's amazing. Yeah. It's Uh, all connected. And then I didn't even realize Camelot was on this list when I was talking about the the death of Lerner and Lowe. So there you go. Yeah, I don't know. Like this, it's a lot of uh, a big turning point point for cinema, cinema this year, and Bonnie Bonnie and Clyde was a big part of it. Um, it was third on this list because it also was re released at the at, at the end of the year and made back mm. a lot of its money in the box office the year after in the U.S. box office, yeah. and up putting around thirty million dollars the next year. So it probably ends up as one of the biggest movies of the next year as well. Uh, cool. Uh, let's talk a bit about some of the some of the people here. So I'll start. I want to mention the composer of this movie because I was pretty surprised to see his name. Uh, Charles Strauss was the was the composer here. Is that a name that means something to you? Um, not really. I think. Yeah, I think I recognize the name. There's some stuff that I've seen that he did music for, but I don't know what they are off the top. Yeah, of my head. so he did he did a few films. This was the first film that he had done, but I know him because he's a three time Tony winning Broadway composer. He did music and lyrics for Bye Bye Birdie in 1961, which won Best Musical. He did music and lyrics for Applause, which is based on All About Eve. And then in 1977, he did a little musical that probably nobody has heard of called Annie. That's the one I was thinking of. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that's the one I was thinking of. As I'm going back and looking through his film scores, he also did the music for All Dogs Go to Heaven, which is one that I have watched many, many times mm. uh, and that I love the music for. So I think that between Annie and All Dogs Go to Heaven, that's where I must have heard his name from. Yeah. So kind of an interesting film score here. I was pretty surprised when watching it to hear all of the banjo music. That's not something that is generally in his wheelhouse. So I was like, oh, that's interesting. But he didn't do any of the banjo music. The banjo music is a famous banjo song that was or was made famous by this movie, but was was used by it. And so he did everything else, which for the life of me, uh, even when I was rewatching scenes, I kept forgetting to listen to see what other what other music was there. And so I still am not really certain what his contributions to this movie were and whether or not I, I like them or think they were good. But he was nominated for an Academy Award. So, yeah, good for him. Yeah. Yeah. That's and cool to um, see his name here. Cool to. I will say I found the banjo music to be quite distracting as I was watching this film. Yeah. So uh, I'm glad he wasn't involved with that part because I didn't I didn't love the banjo music uh, that went along with the film. Yeah, I'm guessing so, he didn't even choose to put it there, but I yeah, don't know. I would guess. Who knows? Who did you have that you wanted to talk about? So the, the one person I really wanted to make sure to talk about was Faye Dunaway. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this was Faye Dunaway's first major role. Um, and... <clears throat> She was she was really really good in this movie. Um, 
it's for me she was the the best part of the film um i enjoyed warren Beatty's performance as well but i thought that faye dunaway just really uh really knocked this uh film out of the park and this was her uh her first film her first real film um and then she went on to do a whole bunch of other things uh later on including chinatown which is uh, one of the big well-known things that she's done uh, but she also did network um and one of the other things that she's well known for um, and then she did a whole bunch of uh, uh, parts later on in her life as she got a little bit uh, older, like the Supergirl movie and The Handmaid's Tale and uh, things like that, where she played a bunch of villains. Um, and so she had kind of a reincarnation of her career. Um, she has so many credits, and I've only seen one of them, this one. Um despite the fact that she has so many movies that she's done. Uh, and it kind of blows me away for for uh, a performer with this long of a uh, career and this, like, storied of a career that I've seen so few of the things that she's done. But uh, the overlap is just one of those that uh, it, her career ending just didn't overlap very much with uh, the things that I ended up watching, if that makes sense. It does make sense. I have seen The Towering Inferno, which is a absolutely ridiculous movie about a skyscraper that uh, the fire escape fails and so the tower turns into a inferno. That sounds terrible. Yeah, that's that sounds horrifying. Yeah. I'll have to watch it, that I mean, at some point, I it is horrifying, and it is also... Yeah, it's a strange little movie. Yeah. She also has a movie coming out this year called The Man Who Drew God. Um, Ooh. Yeah, probably... I don't know. It's a it's it's got Kevin Spacey in it in his first major role since coming back. So I don't know if I'll be checking that one out. But she still has she's still got a career still going since 1967. Yeah, good good for her. And then uh, Warren Beatty, we mentioned this was sort of a passion passion project for him, something that he wanted to get off the ground. So. Uh, his sister, Shirley MacLaine, was who they had originally tapped to play Bonnie. And then, like, when he was still just producing the movie, but then when it was decided that he was going to play Clyde, then they, uh, I don't know why, but I guess they didn't want to kiss each other on screen. So <laughs> that's a little a little strange. And then... I, I think I read that they had a really hard time casting Bonnie before they finally were finally landed on Faye Dunaway. Uh, they went through ten or twelve different people that they were trying to to cast, um, including um, Warren Beatty. Also tried to get for the role. Uh, who was he with at the at the time period? He was. I oh, he remember. had another another lady. Yeah, he had a he had a lady that he was um, that he was with, and I can't remember her name. She's a famous famous actress, uh, and I can't remember I can't remember her name. Uh, but there were a lot of different uh, Natalie Wood. Yes, so mm. Natalie Wood he wanted to have star alongside him in this one, but she didn't want to do it because uh, she was going through a major depressive episode, and she didn't want to do the film because of that. So, 
yeah. so they got Faye Dunaway eventually after going through, I think, 10 or 12 different people uh, for the casting before they finally landed on her. Yeah, makes sense. And uh, I like I think they're pretty, pretty magic in this movie. I, I agree with you that Faye Dunaway gives the standout performance, but I, I think the two of them work really well together. And it is I agree. Yeah, they have very good uh, chemistry as well. If you go into this movie cold, I think their performances are sort of the thing that is most likely to make you go, oh, I see why this movie was big at the time. I see why this is on one of the AF on the AFI top 100 list and yes. viewed as grand groundbreaking. Yeah, most of the other performances didn't really strike me very much throughout the film, but their performance was uh, was quite good, uh, and they they did really well together. Yeah, and then I did briefly want to mention our director here, Arthur Penn. So this was his fifth feature film. So prior to that, he did a good amount of work in television, but then five years before this, had a uh, had directed The Miracle Worker, based on the play of the same name and uh that movie is extremely well was extremely well received at the time and continues to be extremely well regarded uh that was his second movie prior to that he had done the left-handed gun and then did mickey one in 65 and then the chase in 1966 before doing bonnie and clyde in 67 and again they went through a good amount of directors and writers before like i think they couldn't find someone who was willing to do the movie. And a lot of people wanted to do the movie as sort of a slapstick uh, um, comedy type thing. No, no one really wanted to to take this movie and this subject matter seriously. Yeah, so one of the things that's involved with that, the screenwriters had not done anything before mm -hmm. um, and had like literally zero experience doing any screenwriting. Uh, but they were close friends with the uh, people involved with the French New Wave and all the critics that were involved with that. Uh, so their goal was to write something, uh, put something together that would uh, that would bring the French New Wave over to the U.S. Uh, and that was like the purpose of what they wanted to do with this film. And the trick with the French New Wave, it was very like anti-authoritarian, especially anti um studios so it was very much against the studio system so it was hard to get any directors that were involved with the studio system but then because it was still being financed by the studios they tried to get some of those french directors to come on like Truffaut and uh, jean-luc godard um, but they didn't want to do it because they felt like the studio would have too much of a hand in the film so it's in this really weird uh, like liminal space in between the two things where uh the people in nobody in the u.s wanted to do it because uh, it was associated with the french new wave and nobody in the french new wave wanted to do it because it was associated with hollywood uh and so they ended up finding arthur penn that was willing to do it good get yeah it worked out pretty well for him um he had a lot of success afterwards uh, or with this film and then afterwards and it's really uh you know he has a brief career. Um, I think he has, what, like 15 movies altogether, which, you know, for, for a director is not like, that's a pretty good career. Um, but it's over the period of like 15 or 16 years. It's not a long time, time period that he's making movies that are relevant. Um, but the time period where he is doing them, he makes a lot of movies that have a big impact on the way cinema would end up being made. 
and I should should have said he all he directed the Miracle Worker on Broadway. So he did both the both the movie and the stage show. And then after he was done directing, moved into some executive producing. He was uh, executive producer on first what season and a half of Law and Order. So uh, a good career. Yeah, a very successful career. Of you know, one of the other things, you know, he was very um against the hollywood blacklist and so and uh, against you know richard nixon and, um against republican politics in general so uh you know we stand uh, yeah I, I i support him for all of those things as, as were most of the people involved with this film the, the very closely tied to the counterculture movement at the time period and they were not big fans of the authoritarian culture that was on the other side yeah uh, do you want to talk about anyone else? or That's all I've got for this one. Cool. Uh, so this is sort of our last section here. This is any, if you're sitting down to watch this movie for the first time, any advice or, or insight that we can give to first-time viewers. Uh, so why don't you go first? I know you had, had something here. Yeah, so my main thing with this is there's there's a lot of like good reasons to watch this one, like its uh, cultural relevance and its place within the history of American cinema. Uh, but its watchability as like a modern film is not one of those things. Uh, it's it's it was this is a little bit of spoiler for our reactions, but it's it was a hard one for me to watch, and uh, it took me several sit throughs in order to finish it. Um, and I think that outside of like uh pete's dragon or uh robin hood the 1922 uh and i think this might be the hardest watch out of any of the ones that we've covered just to sit down and just watch for just an entertainment sake uh that doesn't mean it's not valuable but um if if your concern is like not getting spoiled with what happens for one it's a, it's a historical event you know, it's historical people that are, uh, you, everybody knows what happened to them. And then additionally, like, there's not much plot to deal with in the first place. So there's not much to spoil for. This is one that I would say you could w- listen to the end of the episode, uh, see how you're feeling about it, or kind of go in prepared that you're doing something that's a little bit more academic rather than uh, for entertainment, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, I wouldn't, if you go in expecting this to be, a rip roar and ride i think you're i think you're going to be disappointed but if you're going in looking to appreciate some really good performances uh particularly from the two leads and then there's certainly some scenes that had some really nice shots and some really uh interesting cinematography that we'll talk about a little bit later and then there's the uh historical impact like the the way they treat sex in this movie and the way they treat nudity in this movie i think was pretty groundbreaking for the time and hadn't really happened a lot on on the big screen and then this was also one of the first movies to use uh squibs which are the little uh in a movie when someone gets shot generally they're or on in a play uh they have little packets of whatever the the red juice that is simulating blood under their costume that then are going to explode and then that's how 
sorry if I ruined the the magic of Hollywood for anyone, but pr- prior to this, gunshots were mostly bloodless in Hollywood. So th- it was yeah. the the way that they would do blood, um, gunshots was mostly through elision or through. Um, like a reaction to the gunshot and so someone yep. would get shot off camera and then someone reacts to the to what's happened um and then maybe they'll pour, put some blood on or whatever but this one uses the those squibs to have those blood packets and whew, not only did they use them they really used them um they really used <laughs> yeah them. they really really used them they used a lot of them there is a um this film has like it doesn't stand out to me as being particularly violent now but at the time period, it was just uh, people were, you know, fainting and like clutching at their pearls for all the violence in this film. Yeah, I, I think that was probably like the major thing that would have helped me a lot in in a first viewing for this movie. Just like knowing that simply seeing blood appear was enough to get people's hearts racing. And I, th- I think knowing that will probably probably help people a bit. Yeah, I think so. Uh, do you have anything else here, or should we That's should we jump to the back half? All right, so we'll uh, come back, and we're going to tell you what happened in this real-life story that happened 70-plus <laughs> <laughs> years ago, 80-plus years ago. All right, exciting. Okay, welcome back. We are gonna get into some scenes here for for Bonnie and Clyde. Uh, but let's start. You sort of spoiled a little bit your reaction to this movie. How did? Uh, what did you think? How did how did this movie hit you? Yeah. So, as we talked about, I think that knowing more about the film would have made me enjoy it more. But this was a hard one for me to watch. I watched it in six different settings. So. Um, I like 20 minute segments because I just had a hard time. It had a hard time maintaining my attention. It's not that any of those parts were particularly bad. I just was not, it, it, it it was not getting my attention fully. Um, so I had to keep coming back to it and watching it. Um, overall, I don't think it's one that I would return to watching again. And it's easy to see like the impact that, that it had on cinema, but I didn't, find it particularly entertaining for my own tastes. Um, and after going mm-hmm. through and reading the different like critical responses to it, I think it's more than just like it's an old film or um, you know it's a different kind of style of film. I think that there's a lot of uh, kind of the ways that I enjoy and view cinema are um, coming to clash with the way this film is like put together and the way that it's structured and the way that it's... Um, like it puts itself into the world. So I don't think that it was ever going to be one that I really enjoyed from that standpoint. But as a as an artifact, uh, I'm really glad to have watched it. And there's a lot to take away from this one. Yeah, yeah. I think I probably liked it a bit more than you did. Um, the I, I'd say probably for the first... 25 minutes of this movie I like was absolutely head over heels in love like I just 
from their meet cute through to like from them meeting each other to him robbing the store to them robbing the first bank to them picking up their sidekick to them robbing the next bank basically everything up until they meet uh his brother i was like 100 percent in the movie and then once i once they met up with wayne's brother with buck and then it was like with buck and blanche then it was sort of then it was just like wait what how did we just i think what excited me so much was i thought it was gonna start slow and ramp up and it was gonna take a bunch of time to like get to the first bank robbery and maybe you'd even see them like alone you wouldn't it would take a little bit of time for them to meet. And so I felt like it just started at 60. But then once uh, once we hooked up with, what were they, Blanche and who? Buck and Blanche. Buck and Blanche. Once we hooked up with them, then I felt like the movie really took a step back in terms of pace. But then also all of the set pieces after that really felt pretty similar uh, with maybe the exception of the one where they catch the catch the ranger and throw him in the water and take the pictures with him, uh, that that felt pretty exciting to me, and yeah, I, I think that was it. Then then it was really a pretty pretty tricky and pretty academic. We're eight years away from Jaws and eight years away. And Jaws, I think of as like kind of a perfectly structured movie and a movie that really tracks. uh, I, I don't think it was quite intentional yet. I think they were probably like 10 years away from Hollywood using the Joseph Campbell formula. But I, um, Jaws and then certainly Star Wars in 77 like you can map that really cleanly onto that and I hadn't really thought about the fact that like a lot of movies from the 60s and this one included it's just like kind of not present at all it would be really difficult to map any sort of traditional story structure onto this movie and i think that's kind of true for a lot of the movies that predate this as well i was thinking of a lot of the um the hitchcock movies and the i don't think the story story structure maps onto those all that cleanly either it's just they have so many twists and turns and so many other interesting things that you sort of stay in it just from a sheer from sheer propulsion and yeah you did have before this one came out we watched uh high noon which i felt had a lot more kind of structure and story beats to it that's a good point yeah uh, but the one thing that i'll add on here is this is coming from the french new wave uh, a lot of the ethos of the french new wave was a rejection of the structure that was there in Got hollywood yeah. previously so a lot of this choice to uh, to deconstruct the structure and have a lot of the plot not be your typical plot 
diagram that like has rising action up to a climax until it falls, but to kind of take more of a meandering path and have a bunch of scenes that maybe are loosely connected um, and that aren't maybe just a straight run through of ramping up action. Uh, those are deliberate choices that they're making. Um, and oh. Yeah, and there's value in that. There's value in those kinds of stories, um, and I think that's really good. But it does make it a lot more difficult of a watch, um, and it's a much more challenging film. Um, I think that there's a lot of people who dislike, in particular, the formula of Hollywood. Uh, you know, the mm-hmm. people that talk about like the MCU formula and all those kinds sure, of things. Sure, yeah. Uh, that and really like independent cinema, and uh, I'm thinking of like you know our friend uh, friend of the show Garrett. Uh, maybe would really like this film in particular because of the way that it does something very different from the structure of typical Hollywood films. Uh, for me, I kind of saw through what they're doing a little bit more than I wanted to, and so it felt it pulled me out of the film so much to see these these things that they were doing. Hmm. I wonder if I would enjoy it more if I went back and watched it, assuming the lack of structure was intentional rather than how I felt, which was that it was accidental and then it was popular despite its lack of structure. Uh, That maybe would make a difference in how I viewed it in the future. Yeah, I think for me, a a lot of this that came out of my research after watching the film into the French New Wave. Um, And so, I don't know. I don't know. It's a... uh, I I doubt that I'm going to go around to to go watch it again, though. But I am interested in watching other films from the time period and other French New Wave films in particular to get a sense for if this one is an outlier for me or if it uh, fits in my response to just kind of... uh, that style of cinema in general it does have a huge impact on american cinema going forward um Mm -hmm. but there's bits and pieces that are taken out of that style and brought into films and then becomes part of the new hollywood formula so that's one of the weird things about it is uh, that it becomes the you take this thing that is a rejection of the formula and it kind of becomes the new formula um and i don't know that's a really strange and really interesting thing to me about art in general uh, should we move on and talk about some of the scenes here? Well, yeah, let's get into the scenes. Cool. So <laughs> uh, everybody who has Zach wants to talk about the opening scene can take a shot right now. Because, yes, I want to talk about this <laughs> this opening, uh, as I said, opening meet cute bet- between them. I I think this whole thing through to them basically the first six minutes of the movie when he asks her her name and she asks him his name i think it's just like absolute firecracker i love her sitting in her bed to open the movie and the the um what are they called the head the headboard of the of the bed is sort of simulating like a jail cell, sort of the yeah, yeah. the trapped world that she feels in. And she, I mean, she looks so unbelievably stunning from moment one of this movie. And then you get those really tantalizing and really uh, exciting shots of her naked, even though you don't 
don't see anything so you get to see her go behind the thing and then she hears the hears the noise outside and looks out the window and then you get to see her from uh from Clyde's point of view where he's looking up and the the window is blocking all of the the things that the the movies wouldn't wouldn't let you show and that would make it just a little a little too illicit and they they have their little flirty moment where she catches him stealing the car and then uh says hold on wait wait there i'm i'm coming down and you get to see her throw throw a dress on and then run down the stairs and then they have a little bit of a of a flirty moment that i i once again it works for me basically 100% i think their chemistry is really fantastic and it really you see why she falls for him and you see why he is taken with her and he he tells her that he chopped his toes off and uh, that he was in jail. And again, this was stuff that I thought was not going to come out probably for another 20 to 25 minutes into the movie, but here it is happening right there. And then you also get this extremely phallic sequence where he shows her his gun and she fondles the gun and... Uh, yeah, that's a great scene, yeah. ...says you... But you would wouldn't even use it which is an uh, allusion to the fact that he's gonna have no problem going and sticking up the bank and shooting his gun uh but until the (laughs) 10 minutes before the end of the movie is gonna be completely unable to perform sexually with her and uh, I I really liked that moment, but the the thing that I loved the most about this was that shot of when she dares him to go do something, and you get that wide shot of him walking all the way across the street into the convenience store, whatever whatever it was, and you see Bonnie just waiting there. On, in the middle of the street, I loved that shot. I thought I thought that worked so 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 well. Yeah, um, for, I I agree with this. That I think the opening of this film is really just uh, very very good, um, and really holds up really well as uh, as well. Um, and for me, it goes basically until um, until after they rob the store and then drive out into the into the middle of nowhere. Um, mm-hmm. and she tries to make out with him and it doesn't work out so good. And he tells her that he's, he ain't no lover boy. Um, basically the film up to that point just was firing all on all cylinders worked really perfectly for me. Um, I found this scene at the very beginning, uh, where she is in her bedroom and she's naked in her bedroom, but the film, um, as you said, it frames her in such an elegant and such a perfect way. Um, and I think that film, that part of the film is just incredibly well done. Um, and I think it's a really good example. You know, I have no idea if you were making this film nowadays, if they were milking, making this film nowadays, um, if they would go to the full nudity. Um, mm-hmm. But I think by not doing that, it really uh, helps out the film in this scene. 
Um, I think the constraints that they had, they're pushing up against the constraints that they have, but the constraints actually help them uh, bring out more of what they're going for than they would, than they might otherwise do. Yeah, um, I did do a little bit of looking into the history of nudity in films, and so there was some. I don't think it was full frontal nudity, but you did see like naked. Uh, topless women a year or two before this in movies and I didn't know this I don't know how I didn't know this but I guess there were um, several scenes shot for Marilyn Monroe movies in the early 60s that where she was shot naked but then they weren't put into the film because they weren't deemed artistically viable did you know that? I did not know that, no. But, you know, that checks out with the Hays Code being there. Like, there's the censors would get a look at it, and they'd probably just say it's not, it doesn't have an artistic reason, so it's not going to go in. Yeah, and then I didn't write it down in my notes, but I think the first movie that, where they did full frontal, might have been, now I don't remember, maybe it was a Marilyn Monroe film, and then she advocated for it to go in, and then it didn't go in. But it was a, shot where she was alone in her dressing room and she was like it just doesn't make any sense like there's no world where some a woman alone in their dressing room would hold something to cover their breasts like if you're gonna show that shot of me you have to show show everything uh (coughs) yeah makes sense was the artistic justification uh, makes sense as an artistic justification. Um, yeah, I, I do know that there is um, plenty of nudity before the Hayes Code comes into play. Uh, so uh, that does happen before the Hayes Code. But once the Hayes Code comes into place, so that all that gets clamped down on so much. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you just you just don't have uh, you just don't have that showing up. You know, except for in um, cinema outside the United States. Um, but yeah, one of the other things that uh, I find so fascinating is uh, is the way that the camera treats Faye Dunaway in this scene, um, there's a lot of the approach to uh, nudity and to women's bodies in the history of film uh, takes this approach that essentially breaks women down as unrelated body parts. So it's mm-hmm. like um, uh, shoulders and breasts and thighs and uh, and butts and uh, whatever it might be and kind of breaking these into to different kind of unassociated body parts. But this one really uh, gives centers her face and makes her face uh, the most important part of all of the different shots. Um, even these shots where you have her kind of turning around, uh, a lot of times you can see her face in the mirror. Um, mm-hmm. And so I, I found this to be a really empowering um, uh, scene, even though with all of this nudity, it feels like um, this would be where uh, where Bonnie would be the most vulnerable, but she doesn't feel vulnerable to me at all. She feels very powerful, empowered in the scene, and I, I really enjoyed that. Even though it feels like she's trapped and she's caged, it feels like she has power that is being trapped or being kept in a cage, rather than that she is vulnerable and, and powerless. Well, and they, they're pretty mature um, in dealing with Bonnie's sexuality in this movie. Like, she is the mm-hmm. one who is wanting to have a relationship with Clyde and, 
he is the one who is unable to. Yeah, and they they don't. Um, it's very sex positive. This whole film, like, it's not. Yes, yeah. it's not making the the um, the argument that this is something. <clears throat> Like they, what's bad about Bonnie and Clyde is that they murdered a whole bunch of people. Um, yeah, it, no, it does not. And sex the shame. sexuality is not a part of what was. That's what humanizes them. No, I kind of was expecting there to be some amount of sex shaming or some amount of like kink shaming of, of them, which, uh, yeah, does not really come across. We'll talk a little bit about the treatment of Clyde's sexuality here in the next scene. Yeah. Um, we can we can move we, on to that scene. If, yeah, we can, we can go on to that. To, yeah, yeah. So the the next scene that that I wanted to talk about is the scene. Um, so this is right after they've. I think they've robbed their first bank as a threesome, and so they had gone to the movie theater and they watched the. <laughs> pretty on the nose uh we're in the money number from 42nd street and then bonnie and uh clyde gives bonnie the opportunity to get out he's like i had to kill someone when we were driving away back there which again was something that i thought was going to be a much bigger deal and much later in the movie but anyway so they are they get pretty passionate here and they are getting really hot and heavy and having a pretty intense uh sex scene and then bonnie eventually or clyde rather pulls away and so at this point in my initial viewing i did not understand that the issue was that clyde was impotent were you able to pick up on that was i just a dummy i did pick up on that yeah um Okay. Yeah, it's right from that part where he's like, "I ain't no lover boy." Um, I think, yeah, you, I think you I was, understood yeah, what that I got, meant. I think I picked that up. Yeah, I kind of, I think I was bringing other stuff to it because I thought maybe he like just wasn't interested in in women or was asexual or or had a very low libido or something. So I didn't, I didn't get it on rewatch. It's pretty obvious because they have a pretty passionate kiss and i was pretty surprised because i had just watched um the first indiana jones movie which has just about one of the sexless most sexless kisses i think i've ever seen in a movie (laughs) i was like oh i guess they just didn't learn how to kiss in movies until later but that is inaccurate uh, because there is plenty of very passionate kissing going on in this in this movie yeah, well, and then I was like, now I, like, don't remember. It's been so long since I watched, like, Casablanca. Like, were they shitty at kissing in that movie? I have no idea. But they probably weren't in, like, all of the Hitchcock movies. And obviously that's just not true because the, it's pretty steamy here for them. And I was pretty shocked when she was, like, getting ready to give our, our good boy Clyde here a blowjob. And I was like, whoa, did, could, are they going to do this in this movie? And then, of course, they didn't. And uh, one thing that is very hard to research, and maybe maybe we have some braver, <laughs> braver Stream It fans, is the history of blowjob depictions in movies. Because I was curious if, like, it had been hinted at before this, at least in 
American cinema, but all I could find when I Googled that was all of the times that people had filmed blowjobs in movies, but it was a real blowjob happening during the filming, which, and then of course, like a bunch of porn links, which is not (laughs) Not really helpful for, yeah, yeah, for, for what I was, what I was trying to look up. So if Um, someone wants to I, figure that out well, unless actually, you look. I think I have a, a I think I remember this from investigating this at a different point of time but I think the first time there was uh, oral sex on camera was pre haze code like 1916 or something like that um, but then again oh, wow. you don't see it again uh, after that because of the haze code so right um, I was doing a bunch of research on the haze code at one point and so wanted to find out where all these things were fitting into and there's uh, there is a rich and vibrant history of sex on film pre haze code uh, that just gets shut down so uh, so you know thoroughly once once those things got put in place yeah and I was able to find that sort of stuff I was more wondering like, a modern incarnation of American cinema. Yeah, like that one I don't have an answer for you. The, the This seemed pretty steamy to me in a way that I was not expecting from, from 1967. Yeah. It's, the other thing that's fascinating to me, um, so as I was looking into this scene in particular, um, apparently the in- original intention was to write Clyde as being bisexual. Um, yes, yeah. And they backed off of it. There's a lot of different accounts for why they backed off of it. But from what I could find, the main reason they backed off of it is they were worried that people would tie the bisexuality into the um, into the criminality. Uh, and they were worried that that would create a negative stereotype. Um, so, I don't know. For me, that was a little bit disappointing. Um, I really would have liked to see uh, a portrayal of Clyde as being bisexual, even though, by all accounts, the real Clyde Barrow was not at all. Not bisexual and also not impotent, I think. No, not impotent um, and not bisexual. Um, and um, I don't know, from, from what I could read, I mean, for a man of his time, it, being a bit homophobic wouldn't have stood out in any particular way. But uh, it's uh, the people that knew him when they saw this film... Uh, talked in particular about uh, Clyde and said it's just that that's not anything like what he was actually like. He was very much like, um, you know, he was not gay at all, had no uh, romantic inclination, inclinations toward men um, and had no problem performing sexually with women, uh, though he did have some uh, encounters where he was raped by a man while he was in prison. Oh, geez. So there is that history. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I had kind of a similar reaction to you when I had read that they intended for the original thought was for him to be bisexual. Um, I was like, oh, that's kind of a bummer. But then I also thought it was like pretty progressive of them to be like, well, we don't want to paint uh, gay people as as villains. I, thought, I was yeah, pretty yeah. surprised by that. <clears throat> May, may have been good foresight, but for me watching now, uh, yes. I'm like, oh, I kind of wish it was. But might have been the right choice uh, at the time period. I don't yeah. know. It's, that's tricky. Yeah, I think both both things. But then I think um, the the shooting of this scene and Faye, Faye Dunaway's exasperation that 
she isn't going to get any and all of the cuts and you see him angrily get up from the bed like it's a just about I think like 120 seconds two minutes of of silent action between them and it tells the, the full story of the passion to here we go to oh no we're not to oh my god I'm so sexually frustrated and him being like I feel so bad and then trying to save it I think his first line is something like well at least you know I'm not a liar or at least at least I, I tell the truth <laughs> yeah. and I, I just think it's a really good sequence and a really brave and clever sequence of, of filmmaking and really good characterization uh, I really love the the I just love to, the portrayal of sexuality in this film because additionally they aren't portraying Faye Dunaway as being uh, or um, Bonnie Parker as being like a femme fatale it, it, they don't portray the sexuality as being like the the cause they, yeah. they do draw comparisons between uh, the crime that they're doing, but they don't uh, they don't indicate it as the cause of the crime that they're doing. And they don't indicate it as a moral weakness in any way. Um, it's always used in a humanizing way. And, you know, Faye isn't, like, out trying to sleep with every other guy that they run across or any of those things. Um, and so, I don't know, I, I, I thought that they did a really good job with the sexuality in this film. Yeah, and I also felt like she was a real person, so it wasn't any Agreed, uh, yeah. manic, manic pixie dream girl type characterization. Maybe, maybe other people would disagree with me on that, but I didn't feel like she was only there to fulfill some director's fantasies. Yeah, I I, I agree with this. So I don't know. I uh, I feel like the way that this film approaches sexuality is more progressive than, like, 98% of the films that I've watched in the past decade. Sure, yeah. So, I don't know. That's, that's something. There's 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 value in that for this film. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Do you want to move on to the next scene? Sure, we can move on to the next scene. Um, I really like this scene, not just because... Okay, so, one of the really weird things about this movie is... It is very uneven in tone. I don't know if you you noticed this in particular. Yeah, no, I agree. Especially very, after this moment. Yeah, It's a very French New Wave kind of thing where it's like uh, uh, sudden jarring uh, changes in tone where it's like violence and then comedy immediately afterwards and then more violence like inter, interposed with the, uh, with the comedy. It's very similar to Quentin Tarantino's style who um, cites this film, Bonnie and Clyde, as one of his major influences. Um, mm. Yeah, so which you know Quentin Tarantino. I know people love Quentin Tarantino, and he's a very beloved uh, director. And I just don't like his films very much. And so I, any anyway, we can continue on. But they interject a lot of this comedy into the film, and uh, I loved the way that they put together this sequence. Um, and this is where their car breaks down, and so they need to get a new car. So they decide to go steal a car from somebody, and they steal cars like five different times in this movie. And they end up uh, robbing this couple, stealing the car, and you see this couple, these uh, these two young lovers that are, you know, sitting on the porch and kind of looking over, and you see in the background that they're stealing the car. Um, and <laughs> it's, it's Gene Wilder. 
Wilder and I can't remember the name of the the person that's with him. Uh, Evans Evans. So they're playing Eugene Gizzard and Velma Davis. But Gene Wilder and Evans Evans uh, are sitting on the porch here, and you just see in the background that they're stealing this car. And apparently, this is basically Gene Wilder's first real film appearance. Um, <laughs> and I mean, it's so. It's so great, and it's such a good performance. Um, they go and get in the car to uh, go get in a separate car to chase them down, and they're chasing after these criminals going to get their car, and they suddenly think, like, wait, what if they have guns? They might kill us. We can't chase after them. We'll just call the police and let them handle it. So they turn their car around and start to leave, and then Bonnie and Clyde and their uh, gang start turns around their car and starts chasing after them. And you have this moment of like, it's comedy, but also you have this moment of panic for them. Like, are they going to get murdered by the Barrow yeah. gang? And uh, th they consider whether they're going to murder them at different points. And so you don't know for sure what's going to happen. Uh, eventually they catch up to them. They're threatening them with the guns uh, and they tell them to hop in the car. And then just the beautiful juxtaposition of the way that they're in the car. So uncomfortable the way that Gene Wilder is sitting there uh, with uh, with Evans Evans uh, packed into the back of the car with Gene Hackman uh, talking and telling his jokes at Gene Wilder. And then it cuts, it does a bunch of jump cuts of them uh, in the back of the car and telling jokes and spending time. And eventually you see that they're having a wonderful time and they make just the greatest of friends with these people that have stolen their car. Um they hamburgers together, uh, so that's the part that ties in with the Big Mac. So they go, oh yeah, yeah. They get hamburgers and they're eating the hamburgers. Um, the actor that plays C.W. Moss, Michael J. Uh, Pollard, uh, he didn't know that you're not actually supposed to eat the food when you're uh, when you're acting, and so he ended up eating twelve hamburgers during this day or during this scene. Um, Not a boy. Yeah, so, you know, that's that's some work, but I just love this scene and uh, not just. I don't know. I felt like this was um, one of the parts of the film that just worked perfectly for all of the performances. So, like, um, you, you, the reactions that you're getting from Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway in response to this and Gene Hackman's performance of uh, telling this joke that he was telling earlier to... Uh, to Clyde and um, Blanche's response. I don't know. All of this worked so well for me during this sequence. It works extremely well for me as a vignette. It doesn't work very well for me in terms of like, what does this add to the movie for Bonnie and Clyde's story? Like what information does this give us? It doesn't it, add it, a lot for that, does it? <laughs> so Yeah, no. But, which I mean is pretty similar to the scene where we meet um where we meet the the brother and sister-in-law buck and blanche yeah buck and yeah buck and blanche <laughs> where um where we take like this huge detour just to create reasons to create photographs that uh i assume are famous and yes are, that's basically why they're uh doing a lot of those photographs that end up getting taken yeah, for the these <laughs> huge laugh moments. So yeah, pretty similar to that in that it feels like a little vignette detour that the that the movie makes. Yes, I think fill some time. <laughs> so I think there are some and going along with this uh, French New Wave style of like the juxtaposition of um, of like the violence and the comedy and the tension and. Um, 
and the release of tension just really quickly and with all the jump cutting and all of those things. Mm-hmm. I think there are some thematic things that are planted into this. In particular, um, you see in the performance of Faye Dunaway that she is getting more and more exasperated uh, as this is as this is going on. And so I think that conflict between uh, Faye and... Or not Faye, between... Um, Bonnie, Bonnie and Buck is really developed in this scene, but it's all so subtle and like not um, not like clearly accentuated uh, that mm-hmm. it's hard to see how this all goes. And that's basically the, this entire film is you have so many essentially vignettes that are only very loosely connected together. Basically, from the time they meet C.W. Moss going forward to the f- end of the film is a bunch of loose vignettes with very little tying them together. Yeah, that makes sense. But, I mean, the, this is a fun one. Like, <laughs> they're yeah. they're very funny. And the... Gene Wilder's so good in this one. He's a, His performance is just great. The Because I didn't know what was going to happen, I was like, oh, are we just expanding the gang? Like, are we going to have, have five people in the Barrow gang for the rest of this movie? And then... Bonnie, I can't even remember what it is that that sets her off, but then she's just like, "Yeah, they have to go," <laughs> and yeah. then and then they're gone, and they never come back. It's great, yeah. So, uh, very weird scene. I don't know. I I love the execution of it, but yeah, it's the the movie's weird, and this scene's a great example of the ways in which it is weird. Uh, man, kind of want a hamburger now. That does sound good. Yes. Do they have like take out hamburgers in 1933 or whenever we were 35 i have no idea hmm i feel like they didn't that's okay but they did in 1967 they did in 1967 was invented that's right and mcdonald's had been around for 12 years Hmm. yeah seems like an anachronism to me uh, it does seem a little bit anachronistic, but who knows? I don't know. I also wondered when he was like, I ordered mine well done. I was like, do they have those designations for burgers in the 30s? Feels like you just got your burger. I don't know. I don't even know when burgers were invented. Uh, I should have looked that burgers up. Burgers were invented in like, I, burgers have been around for a while, but um, but I don't know Meat how long. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. Yeah, because sausages have been around forever. Exactly, right? but I don't know how long they've been popular in the U.S. That's that's my main question. So I don't know. Who knows? Uh, we may find out from listeners. Let us know if you know the history of hamburgers. Send us an email. Yeah. Some sometimes we stop in Google, but not today. <laughs> uh. All right. <laughs> Should we talk about our last scene here? Let's talk about the last scene, yeah. Yeah, this one's pretty quick, and it's pretty quick in the movie, but this was one where I I don't... I can't remember what was happening. I think maybe Tay was, like, growling at something outside, and so I paused the movie with about five minutes left, which is when they're still in town. And I'm like, how are they going to finish this movie in five minutes? And it's because the final showdown takes about uh, two minutes and 30 seconds. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's quick. It, 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 goes, it goes by. And I, I think this is a pretty nice uh, little bit of 
a little bit of pretty nice little bit of filmmaking. I I like Bonnie and Clyde driving driving down the road and then sharing the pair and the pair thing was quite good, you know, and since uh, I, I thought they performed the pair really well as well. Yeah, and that that helps a lot. And I liked the interaction with them getting out of the car with um, the the dad of their the dad of their friend and going to help him out. And then on first viewing, it sort of broke down a little bit from there. I was expecting something a little more. I think that's just my problem mis misplaced expectations and the f- uh, on initial watch i found like the shot of the birds flying away and then all of the jump cuts between bonnie realizing and clyde realizing and uh then them looking at each other but the them looking at each other was like so fast and i think it was intended to be a really important moment of them checking in with each other and seeing each other in their last moments. But it was just too fast for me to notice on the first time. And you don't get a wide shot of it. You just get both of them changing focus to something that you don't see. And I think it's assumed that it's that it's them, that it's each other. And then the bullets just start flying. And because I didn't realize that blood hadn't been shown in movies before really it this did not have the initial impact that (laughs) that i was expecting i was like oh that's that's it (laughs) they just oh okay they're dead and then the movie ends but (laughs) that's the end of the movie that's it (laughs) and then it just says to be fair they get shot a lot I mean, they it do. is just the, the, the they don't spend very much time on like their faces before they get shot, but they spend plenty of time on just the bullets flying and just their bodies falling out. Um, apparently, Faye Dunaway's uh, leg had to be t- tied to the car so that when she was falling out, she wouldn't fall all the way out of the car. Oh um, wow! Yeah, and then it's just squib after squib. I mean, it's just blood and blood and blood. And uh, Faye Dunaway's dress. She's they have them in these white clothes, and Faye Dunaway in that white dress and it's just blood packet after blood packet exploding out of her, her dress and i don't know it's that part they they spend plenty of time on but uh you know i don't know the rest of it's very very quick yeah I, so i liked it more on rewatch when i was able to be like oh yeah i if you were not used to seeing blood at the movie theater i can see how this would be oh my god like a climax worthy of this movie but to me, it was just like, ah, no, they got they got shot up a lot. <laughs> yeah, um, I had this is one part of the film that I had a good idea of what was coming um, mm. because um, in the Highwaymen, uh, I had mentioned watching that one. They spend like forty minutes going over setting up this scene. Um, oh really <laughs> yeah so that one i saw uh, like a 40 minute detailed like uh setting up exactly where all the cops were going to be how they were going to like uh though that one's based much more on the history so i was expecting some of the more historical details to come into it but uh and when they end up shooting up the car that's they take longer than this film does just to keep firing bullets into the car over and over and over and over again um so you know i i was so I was expecting them to meet their end in that way. And, you know, uh, because of that, 
I kind of, my expectations were managed and I was ready for this scene the way it was going to go. Yeah, makes sense. I didn't have a ton, a ton else to say about this scene, but I did want to point it out just because everything I read about this movie and its historical importance was about just how brutal this scene was at the time. And I think we would be remiss not to, not to point that out. For sure. Yeah. And like you said, they basically invented squibs. They didn't invent them for this film, but it's the first film that really used them. And they got their money's worth out of the squibs in this scene. Um, So many shots. Um, Oh, yeah. I mean, it's sort of like the Matrix inventing bullet time. You know, once you invent it, you may as well. Or once you're going to use the new technology. Yeah, you got to use it. It's Though in real life, I think they were shot like uh, 180 times or something like that. Um, Jeez. <laughs> so it, that's that part is realistic because uh, Clyde was known to be such a good marksman that they were just like, we're just going to keep shooting until we're absolutely certain they're dead. So um, that's accurate. But not only that, um, there is actual video from the real life ambush of, of Bonnie and Clyde. Um, oh, really? So, well, it's a little bit tricky because they didn't video it as it happened, but they videoed the, um, the police videoed a reenactment of what happened like two days afterwards at the same location. Um, with, and so you can see basically, um, the idea of, of what happened. They just don't have like actual Bonnie and Clyde's, uh, I think they actually did have the bodies with them, but I don't know. It's, it's complicated, but there's video of this. You can go watch, uh, basically what what happens and this film strays pretty far from uh the accurate details of the the ambush and everything that goes down um but it's close enough the the shooting just over and over the way they just uh made swiss cheese out of that car and um uh and just kept on shooting them uh that part's definitely accurate that is so weird (laughs) yeah it's so weird uh should we move into cleanup here yeah let's go into cleanup Okay, I don't have a ton of stuff, but I do have... I was pretty confused. I did not really track why they um, why they picked up their, their little companion there. It seemed like they were getting him because they thought he knew stuff about cars or that he was smart, but then it turned out he wasn't really that smart at all. In fact, I think they were sort of trying to portray that he was rather simple. So I did, I got pretty confused about that. I wasn't really able to track what story they wanted to be telling there. So from what I could gather, um, first thing is that C.W. Moss is an amalgamation of three different members of the gang. Um, so kind okay. of all put together. So it's three characters <laughs> that they've just uh, blended together into one spot. But then additionally, the original drafts of the screenplay had um, a three-way relationship between um, Clyde and C.W. Moss and uh, and Bonnie Parker. Um, and so... Right, that was the and, bisexuality. Yes, and so it was not only... Like, it was in the scripts, and some of those things were still there, um, and were things that were shot. Uh, so some of those scenes that they had worked up were still shot, but they had taken out the payoff for what they would end up being. So I think that's also contributes to the confusion. Got it. Yeah, that makes yeah. sense. So it was, yeah, it was a little bit of sloppy cobbling. Or a uh, yeah, a little bit. Yeah. yeah. So, which, you know, I don't know. It works, I guess. Yeah, it happens. It's fine. Yeah. So one uh, of the things that, that I, for me, was 
So apparently when this movie first came out, it was completely slammed by the critics. Um, mm-hmm. They hated it. And then this one lady, Pauline Kale, wrote an, uh, an essay in The New Yorker that she was like, all of you critics are stupid. This film is amazing and this is a work of art. And then like a bunch of the critics took back their reviews and did secondary Whoa. reviews of them and said that it was amazing. Uh, and then afterwards it like rehabilitated the image of the film and people went, and go, went to go see it afterwards. Yeah, it is such a wild thing to be a critic because almost invariably, like, you're going to... Like, think about how many movies you've seen where you maybe didn't like it or you hated it on your initial viewing, but then, uh, you know, years go by, you watch it again and you sort of come around on it or even really like it or just get educated on some stuff. And, man, it's got to be got to be a strange thing to just have your your pan out there for everyone to see or even your rave out there for everyone to see and then so weird cultural perception changes on it and maybe even your your opinion changes on it so one of the weird things with the reviews one of those guys that changed his review uh he left the other one up and he like basically did compared his second viewing with his first viewing um, no, you him. can go find those reviews. I don't. I don't have the link to it on hand. Um, but that one's particularly cool because he basically talks about why he got it wrong uh, on his yeah. first viewing. So I don't know. That's kind of a fascinating thing as well. Um, one yeah, of the we should have had him on stream it. One of the critics that gave it a good, a very good review um, called it like one of his. It was his first year, I think, working, maybe like the second year of working, um, and he said it was one of the first masterpieces he had seen working as a professional critic. Was a little-known critic known as Roger Ebert, um, <laughs> and so you have one of those reviews as well um, as this film was coming out. Yeah, nailed it. Yeah. I guess that's why Roger Ebert gets to become Roger Ebert. Uh, exactly. I, I do have one quote I want to read from this lady's article, Pauline Gale. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, uh, that I, I very much connected with this, um, even though I didn't connect with the movie as much as she did. But this quote I really uh, vibe with. It says, uh, to ask why people react so angrily to the best movies and have so little negative reaction to poor ones is to imply that they are so unused to the experience of art in movies that they fight it. Um, and I don't know. I love that quote and this idea that, um, people will have, and I see this so much where, uh, people react so strongly in negative ways to the smallest negative things in good movies, but there's so many like garbage movies that come out that they don't even pay attention to. Um, and Mm -hmm. people will take like good movies and say that they are terrible, um, only because they don't watch enough bad movies to understand art when they're seeing it. I don't know. It's a, I really connected with her quote there. Yeah, I like it. Should have had her on stream it too. That'd be great. Yeah. All, all these reviewers from 1967 stealing stealing our lines. That's right. Uh, the only other thing that I had had for cleanup was to talk about those those pictures, but we already covered that, so I'm I'm out. Do you have anything else? Uh, oh, I do have one more thing. So this film gives Frank Hamer the the guy who like tracked them down and found them basically portrays him as a bumbling nincompoop um Mm -hmm. which is 
not really accurate at all. Um, you know, I've never been uh, a big fan of uh, of cops in general, um, and am more inclined to side with the with the criminals in stories like these. Uh, but if there was ever ever a cop that you'd look at and say, like, you know, maybe he was. He was not the worst. Uh, it would be Frank Hammer. Um, he got his start taking down the KKK. Um, and so he he had a long history of rooting out uh, members of the KKK. And that's what he did for 20 some odd years. And he basically came out of retirement uh, to go find Bonnie and Clyde. Um, and I don't know. He has a, a, a as far as law enforcement is, um, he's got a pretty good record as far as it goes. Um and uh, the work that was put in to track down Bonnie and Clyde, uh, and this one you can watch in the in the film The Highwaymen, uh, or The Highwaymen, that uh, details that perspective. And it was an incredibly difficult law enforcement job for them to do because of how good Bonnie and Clyde were at hiding their tracks, especially considering the time period and uh, the way that the intersection of cars and banks and the Great Depression was making it difficult to track down people who were robbing banks. Yeah, uh, certainly tracking down the KKK is uh, one, one of those notches that'll put you on the side of the good guys. Yeah, it's a vast majority of the time. You know, it's a he, he can he can still be uh, uh, he can still be a cab, but uh, slightly less than than maybe uh, other law enforcement officers would be. No. Uh, do you have anything else, or should we should we wrap this bad boy up? That's it. Yeah, we do get to segue a little nicely from the criminal getting chased by the cop into our movie for next week because we are watching a famous story of a criminal getting chased by a cop. We are going to watch Catch Me If You Can from 2002. I believe this is our first time doubling up on a director we did uh obviously jurassic park from 1993 so we're gonna get to see what what happens nine years after that when we tell the ostensibly true story of frank abagnale jr but we will get into that for next week as always if you want to get in touch with us we would love to hear from you we'd love to hear from you uh, hopefully Twitter still exists by the time this email, this podcast comes out. Uh, if it does, I'm on Twitter at Zvazda, Z-V-A-Z-D-A. And, uh, and Matt is at? Uh, O-R-A-M-W, O-R-A-Y-M-W. Yeah, all of the episodes that we have in the can, we never really considered the idea <laughs> that uh, Twitter might just die. Yeah, so I don't know. I don't know. Um, yeah, we might have, uh, in the next couple of episodes, we might be, uh, detailing where you can find us. That's not Twitter. Uh, who yeah. knows? Find us on Mastodon. At... <laughs> so, uh, who knows? But if Twitter dies, you can always shoot us an email that is at podcaststreamit at gmail.com. And of course the link to that is in the show notes. And finally, we do want to thank David Stewart, a.k.a. Estoriel, our beta listener and frequent editor of the podcast. I think he is not editing this one, so if it's a little worse, then you can blame it on me. But David has some well-deserved vacation time coming up, and we will look forward to having him back when he is back. 
Yep. Thanks so much, David. We love you and we appreciate your work. Yeah. So we will talk to you next week. Bye. Bye.